Hey, howdy, space fans. Thanks for joining me every week as we explore space exploration. This show is fueled by listeners just like you. So consider a donation to WMFE. That's the radio station that produces Are We There Yet? You can do that by calling 1-800-785-2020 or visiting WMFE.org. Your gift helps us better explore exploration. Thanks. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. We're about to see things in the universe never before seen. The James Webb Space Telescope is huge, and it's going to give us a peek at things from a perspective never seen before. The Webb, as they call it, will look at objects in the universe unfiltered by our atmosphere and by using infrared sensors. We're going to be able to see through clouds of gas and dust and look at the stars that have long since gone undiscovered. The telescope is a collaboration between NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency. It's being assembled now, with a launch scheduled in 2018. And watching over that developmental effort is NASA's John Mather. And he joins us via Skype from the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. John Mather, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks. Well, John, before receiving the name James Webb Space Telescope, it was called the Next Generation Space Telescope, which seems like a pretty fitting name for what it's planning to do. But what sets this space telescope apart from the others, the likes of of Hubble or Spitzer? Oh, my golly. So many different things. Uh, Number one is obviously being done because it will open up a new territory for science. Uh, And the way that it does that is to observe infrared light uh, much better than we've ever been able to do it before. So infrared is a new scientific frontier. Um, because uh, we can't do it well from the ground. Uh, The atmosphere that we love and breathe is mostly opaque. Uh, Also, it glows, uh, so you can't see very well. Uh, So there's a new territory to open. So to do that, we've had to make a telescope that is in deep outer space that must operate at a very low temperature so it doesn't glow itself in the infrared. And, uh, And also much larger than the Hubble Space Telescope. So this is a truly massive undertaking for us to open up this new territory. John, you've been on this project since day one. Has, has that always been the goal of this project, is to get an infrared telescope, or was it to get just a really, really massive telescope into space? No, it's, it's actually always been the goal. Uh, the goal was set out for us by a committee that wrote a beautiful report uh, back in the 1995 and 96. It was called HST and Beyond, and it said this is what NASA should do. And so we've been trying to do it ever since. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope is absolutely massive. Like, how do you folks manufacture it, and, and how do you put all those parts together uh, on, on this giant project? And give me a sense of how big it is. Oh, golly. Well, the telescope is much larger than the Hubble. Uh, The telescope uh, diameter of the mirror is about 6.5 meters, about 21 feet, uh, which is about two and a half times as large as the Hubble diameter. So it's a huge, huge mirror. Um, It is so huge that it will not fit into the rocket by itself. It has to be folded up to do that. It is also protected by a truly gigantic umbrella. We call it a sun shield, which is as big as a tennis court. So that's what makes this telescope especially challenging to build. Uh, But you called it massive, by the way, and in truth, it is less massive than the Hubble. The mass of of the Webb telescope is about 6,000 kilograms, and the Hubble is about twice that. 
So we had to do that in order to use the rockets that we can get to launch this giant telescope way out into deep space. And how is that process going to happen? How, how are you launching James Webb? Oh, uh, well, we take the telescope down to French Guiana uh, in South America, and we meet up with a European rocket, which is being contributed by Europe as part of our international partnership. And we put it on there, and then they push the button, and it goes straight up to the Lagrange Point L2, which is a million miles out. And, uh, and we'll orbit around that. And, and talk to me a little bit about those Lagrange points. I know that there's some satellites that sit in, in the L1. What are they, and, and what's different between the L1 Lagrange point and, and the L2, where James Webb is heading? Okay, well, there are five of the Lagrange points, and they are all places where the combined force of the Earth and the Sun will take your observatory or whatever around the Sun once a year. So there's sort of stationary points from our perspective. So that's great. Uh, when we put the telescope out at the Lagrange point two, it'll sit overhead at midnight for the entire program. So we always know where it is and where to point for, to it. Um, it differs from the Lagrange point one in that it is, uh, the number two is outside the Earth's orbit and number one is inside. But otherwise, they're very similar. And, and just for some comparison, correct me if I'm wrong here, Hubble, does that sit in, in uh, Earth orbit or is that at one of the Lagrange points? No, that's all. It's in a low Earth orbit, which is uh, just a few hundred miles up, which means uh, you can get there with a space shuttle. Space shuttle uh, cannot do that uh, anymore, but we could. And what what's the um, what's the advantage to having it at one of these Lagrange points and not in low Earth orbit like Hubble? Well, uh, there's a an enormous advantage, which is it's the only place we could find where we could uh, unfold the telescope and protect it behind an umbrella, a sun shield, and keep it cold. Uh, if you orbit close to Earth, um, you cannot do that. The, the, uh, there's no way to protect the telescope from the heat of the Earth and the sun at the same time. And so we're talking about this, this sun shield that's the size of a tennis court, as you say. So we're la- you're launching it from uh, French Guiana on the Ariane 5. It gets to that point. Walk me through how it kind of deploys and, and, and what that process is to, to kind of make it operational. Okay, well... Uh, shortly after launch, within a few hours, of course, we want to make sure we have electrical power, so we unfold the solar panels right away. Soon after that, we unfold the uh, antenna that we use for high-speed data link back to Earth, so we're always in touch with the observatory. Uh, then uh, we wait a while uh, before we do the rest of it. So we want to wait a while because uh, we have built the observatory out of carbon fiber, and uh, carbon fiber absorbs water. So we don't want that water to get out and condense onto our cold optical system. So we wait for a while until it goes away. And then after a few weeks, we say, now it's time to unfold the sunshield and uh, let the telescope begin to cool down. So it's all done with uh, pulleys and cables and motors, uh, this uh, unfolding process. It's a very elaborate thing. And uh, finally, the telescope itself unfolds uh, on hinges. It's very much simpler method, but... Unfolding the big piece of plastic sunshield is actually the hardest part so because it's the least familiar for us. Yeah, has, has something like that ever been done before? Uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, as far as I know, nobody needed a big piece of plastic like that out there. Um, but on the other hand, uh, lots of complicated things have been done, uh, just not uh, for NASA, not in the same way. Now, John, you mentioned this a bit earlier with, with Hubble you're able to get up to it with something like the space shuttle, which which did have to happen early in that Hubble mission uh, for some some maintenance work on there. I mean, with with something this size being at that Lagrange point two, 
we really can't get out to it. I mean, is that a little unsettling? Does that worry you at all? Well, of course. Uh, that's our challenge, and our uh, challenge was necessary because there's no way to do this observatory um, anywhere closer. So um, we said, well, we've always been able to get our observatories to work. Um, in the past, uh, Hubble was a special thing that was designed to be serviced, but um, we know how to make them work without uh, being able to visit them. Um, never, uh, it requires a whole lot of steps, a lot of testing, a lot of uh, engineering review. Um, it also requires having two of everything when you could. So we've got all of those things have been done, and now uh, we're in the final stages of putting the observatory together and testing it. And what's the targeted launch date on this, John? Two years from now, October 2018 is the target, and uh, everybody wants to know, are you really going to do that? Well, of course, no one honestly knows the future, uh, but we have had a plan. We've been able to stick to the plan for five straight years, um, which is a remarkable thing in itself. Now, talk to me about those mirrors, because when you look at pictures of the James Webb Space Telescope, they're just this gorgeous shade of gold, and they're these you know, beautiful geometric shapes. It's, it almost looks like a piece of art uh, instead of a telescope. How did you manufacture those, those mirrors, and how, how did they become installed on the telescope? Oh, goodness. Well, they are beautiful and coated with gold. And the reason for gold, by the way, is that the gold is the best reflector for the infrared light that we're trying to observe. Uh, but it, the mirrors are not actually made of gold. They are made of beryllium, which is a very light and very stiff metal. Um, element number four in the periodic table. And so uh, those uh, 18 gold hexagons are really beryllium. Um, we start with a, uh, a block of beryllium. Uh, we uh, cut out most of the material, so it'll be lighter weight, just leaving a, uh, a rib structure with pockets on it. And then we very, very carefully polish it until it's the right shape. And when it's about the right shape, then we cool it down to the low temperature that it will have in flight. And we measure to see uh, how close is it. And then we warm it up and we polish it one more time so that the next time when we cool it down, it is the right shape. And that's, uh, that's been very successful. But it's obviously a tricky process. So they're all mounted up on a giant carbon fiber frame. And the uh, mirrors are all mounted with motors so you can adjust where they are and a little bit about the curvature so that after we get it in space and focus it in on a star, uh, those 18 mirrors will function as though they were one large, almost perfect mirror. Now, I will admit I am kind of addicted to the uh, the webcam that you have on the website, and I, I check in on it every day, and it's so cool to well, see. Me too. Oh, it's great, right? <laughs> What's it like working on this project? You said you were, you were the one there from the start. Seeing this thing come together, is it going to be hard to say goodbye to it in 2018? Well, it won't be hard to say goodbye because we're not really saying goodbye. We're just giving you a good handshake and have a good trip. Uh, we'll be talking to you every day over and over. So um, it's not really a way uh, very far out of reach uh, in uh, logical terms. We will be sending commands to it every day and we'll be receiving data back from it every day. And we'll be saying, how are you doing? How's your health? Are all your voltages correct? and things like that all the time. So we'll be talking to it for, according to plan, 10 years of scientific operations, which will take us, um, which when well, they begin around April of 2019, and so in, into April of 2029, we should still be observing with this telescope. Now, John Mather, tell me a little bit about some of those uh, scientific observations you're hoping to see with James Webb when that does start in 2019. 
What are you looking okay. for? Yeah, so we had four big things that we thought people would want to use the telescope for. Uh, the first one was, well, what happens after the Big Bang? Where do the first stars and galaxies come from? And what do they look like? And how about the black holes that are in them? Uh, we see black holes now. Well, did those come from the Big Bang or did they come later? Uh, second one is, well, how do the galaxies grow? Uh, the Milky Way that we live in is probably made out of thousands of little bits that got pulled together by gravity. Um, how would you know? Well, go back and look and see what galaxies were like uh, when the universe was young. So, of course, we do look back in time by looking at things that are far away. As you look uh, with your own eye, you can see the Andromeda Nebula as it was a few million years ago. What we can do with the Webb telescope is look out almost almost the age of the universe, which is 13.8 billion years. So we should be able to get within one or 200 million years of the original expansion itself. So almost all the way back to where we think the universe would have been very different and uh, galaxies would be forming for the first time. So that's the uh, second one. Third one is, well, how about stars like the sun? How are they born? Uh, and we see them growing nearby uh, occasionally. And so we want to take their pictures uh, it's been a very frustrating problem for astronomers all these years because these uh, new stars are almost always born in dusty clouds and they look beautiful to the camera, but you can't see the star. So um, our job is at least in part to uh, see through the dusty clouds and into the very insides where new stars are being born, uh, often with planetary systems. So uh, this is another of our great ambitions is to understand how the planets grow and uh, combining our forces with those of the other observatories that all, all get uh, different information, we hope to be able to tell you whether our planetary systems like the solar system are common or rare. And in the very last instance, of course, we want to know more about our own solar system and how come Earth seems to be so special. Now, when it comes to seeing those those young stars in comparison, like with Hubble, one of my favorite photos is is the pillar of creation. You're you're saying that James Webb will actually be able to look through those pillars of gas and, and see those stars? Yes, indeed. Uh, we'll take pictures that look like the ones you already saw, only a bit better. Uh, but we'll also be able to see through the clouds and see the stars inside. Cool stuff. One thing I find really cool about about Hubble and Spitzer and, and eventually the James Webb Space Telescope is how they can be used by astronomers all across the globe can you kind of walk me through the process of, of, of how astronomers apply to use the telescope and, and how you pick where it's going to look and, and what it's going to snap photos of? Okay, well, I figure every astronomer in the entire world is going to send us a proposal. So <laughs> we tell them how to write a proposal and what it should look like to be considered. And uh, then they tell us what they want to look at and why. And so uh, we expect thousands and thousands of proposals coming in. And we will uh, have committees of astronomers to read them and say, well, that one's pretty good. That was really super. Uh, and somehow try to choose what is the best use of the telescope time, um, which is very precious. And so then we, uh, we, after we choose them, then we say, okay, now for the details, exactly, exactly how do we do this? And finally, uh, we take the data and we give them the data to the astronomers. And after a little while, we say, okay, general public, here it is. Here is all the information. You can have a go at it, too. What's one image or portion of the sky that, that you're particularly excited to see with this James Webb Space Telescope? Well, one that I'm always thinking about is called the Hubble Deep Field or the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. This is a little piece of sky where there was almost nothing to see. And the Hubble team decided to point their telescope at that for weeks on end. And what they found was thousands and thousands of galaxies 
that were quite different from what people expected. So uh, they also showed us from that picture that you could not see far enough with the Hubble to see what were the first galaxies like. So couldn't see far enough back in time, couldn't see far enough back out in distance. Uh, so let's go have a look and see if there are any big surprises there. So there are some good reasons to think there would be surprises. Uh, the fact that there is a big whopping black hole in the middle of every galaxy now um, tells us something dramatic happened, and we do not know how it came to be. So it could be that we'll turn up a, a whole crowd of new kinds of objects out there that nobody has, um, has ever seen before. Well, John Mather is a senior scientist with NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, John, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and wish us luck with that launch. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Support for Are We There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE. You can follow the show online. We're on Twitter at AWTYMars. Are We There Yet, Mars? Get it? Or reach out to me in the Twitterverse. I'm at SpaceBrendan. I love to hear from listeners. And hey, if there's something you want us to talk about, shoot me a tweet. You can leave us a review on iTunes. That's how more people learn about this podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org space. For now, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.